Questionable, the podcast. Uh, today, we are going to be discussing the historicity of the resurrection. Um, and basically, that's just a way to say we're going to look at historical fact uh, around the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, in, in past weeks, we've made arguments for the existence of God. Uh, and in doing so, one undertakes a task that most believers ponder at some point or another during their journey of faith. Whether these arguments come from reason, morality, cosmology, epistemology, ontology, or any other number of criteria, we can say with confidence that there is overwhelming evidence for the existence of God. In doing so, and making these arguments for the existence of God, we would be able to call ourselves deists, or we would subscribe to deism, which is basically a belief in a supernatural power or creator, uh, external of nature itself. But in, in making these arguments, we are nothing more than deists. Uh, there's prominent deists actually in, in history. I think Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, some of these guys were deists, uh, and they believed in an external creator, but they were not comfortable with the miracles that we read about in their Bible, so they cut <clears throat> a lot of these um, accounts out. And so we, 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 you'll hear terms like cut-and-paste Bibles from Thomas Jefferson, from Benjamin Franklin, smart men, um, but they didn't really want to try to explain miracles. And so they were not monotheists, but they were deists. Theoretically, a person of any religion could and should ask and use these arguments to show uh, atheists and agnostics that God does indeed exist. However, mere belief in the existence of God is insufficient, at least for Christianity, in terms of salvation. After all, even the demons believe. This is not the point of today's discussion, but it is worth pointing out nonetheless uh, believing God exists gives you no superiority over the atheist or the Muslim or a Mormon or even a monkey. Rather, uh, merely believing in his existence, we ought to conduct our lives as though he really does exist. But today we want to take the next leap and we want to go from deism to strict monotheism. Uh, so Christianity is the exclusive religion in all religions that claim that God became a man to dwell among us, to die for our sin, and ultimately to be resurrected from a tomb. Um, Islam asserts that salvation is through works, uh, so there is no need for a savior. Uh, we were just talking about this pre-recording. Uh, Mormonism also asserts the same thing. Uh, their salvation is through their adherence to Mormon teachings. Eastern religions like uh, Buddhism, Hinduism, some of those major world religions assert that we will eventually become a part of God, which implies God's somehow lacking in wholeness, which would raise the question of the definition of God. The point is, is that every single religion makes claims about the origin of the world, the state of humanity, and the destiny of human beings. And so today we're going to put the claims of Christianity to the test, specifically the claims that Jesus was a man that walked on earth 2,000 years ago, that he was killed, he was crucified, and most importantly, that he rose again from the grave. This is obviously a very bold statement to make, but if Jesus did indeed make these claims, 
If he was indeed crucified and if he arose from the grave like he claimed, then the only outcome could possibly be that his claims are the ultimate truth. So we get to ask ourselves today, is the Bible, and more specifically the gospel authors and Paul's writing, merely fairy tale intended to elevate the human condition, or are these claims verified through historical fact? <clears throat> if they are merely fairy tales, then we have no need to call ourselves Christian or have a hope for heaven. But if Jesus did live, die, and resurrect, then we must believe all that Jesus said and all that was said about him in Scripture is necessary for our salvation. Uh, writings of the life of Jesus, his miracles, uh, what, things he did, things he taught, are included in the Gospels in our Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They each wrote accounts of Jesus' life, um, the miracles performed. They also wrote extensively about his crucifixion and his resurrection. But these books, the Gospels, don't really necessarily satisfy uh, the skeptic and the skeptical scholar, the atheist, who does not believe the truth of the Bible. And that's okay. Because today we're going to go through, or we're going to now go through, five examples of historical fact that point to the resurrection of Jesus. The first historical fact that we're going to talk about is extra-biblical accounts. This is all other writings that are not included in the canon of Scripture that we have today as Christians. Here are several other authors not included in our Bible, as I just mentioned, and many of these are not Christian. They would have been either uh, Jewish religious leaders who denied Jesus as the Messiah, or they were Roman historians. These include Tacitus, Josephus, Mara Bar, Bar Serapion, Lucian, the Talmud, this is the Jewish writings, and this was written around the life of Jesus, Clement of Rome, Ignatius, Polycarp, Barnabas, and Justin Martyr. This is not a conclusive list. And in fact, there's a prominent atheist by the name of Bart Ehrman, who is a one of the, one of the world's leading um, New Testament scholars, actually. He's an atheist. And he claims that there are over 15 written accounts of the existence, crucifixion, and resurrection of Jesus. Generally, Writers of history tend to write history from their nation or from their group of people's perspective. And so we can ask ourselves, why is it that libraries were always burned during times of war? Because it would erase history. So <clears throat> if we have accounts from history uh, of the life and the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus outside of our Bible from other Christians, but more importantly from skeptical Jews, and from Roman historians, this is a fact that the resurrection took place. That is one argument, extra-biblical accounts. The second argument we're going to look at is the duration of time between the event of the resurrection and the written declarations of the resurrection. The duration of time that passed between the resurrection of Jesus and the writing about his resurrection uh, most scholars estimate it somewhere between three and five years, but less than five years for sure. The account that was written first, we can read in 1 Corinthians 15, chapter, uh, chapter 15, excuse me, verses 3 through 8. This passage was likely a type of song or a poem. It was an early creed 
Uh, in fact, when the Apostle Paul was baptized, it's speculated that this, this passage would have been uh, given to him to memorize as a creed uh, during his baptism, during his um, conversion on the road to Damascus. The account is the very first writing we have in Scripture of the resurrection, and it may be the most important passage we have regarding the resurrection, uh, and we're going to read it, but we'll come back to why it is so important uh, towards the end of today's lesson. But let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 8. Paul writing, For I delivered to you as of first importance, or most importantly, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, so we're not going to be making the argument today of the fulfillment of prophecy, but that is yet another argument that you could make. Uh, but he died in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Think about this with me for a moment as well. Uh, everybody knows, at least in the modernized world, everybody knows the name Alexander the Great. Uh, he was considered to be one of the greatest leaders and military geniuses, uh, at least of his time and, and arguably even in this world. Nobody disputes the fact that Alexander the Great lived and that he changed the course of history through his military conquest. But here's something to consider. Writings of the conquest and the life of Alexander the Great did not occur until approximately 350 years after his death. So from a historical perspective, the immediate written response to the resurrection and the sheer volume of authors and the copies of the resurrection are strong evidence that it indeed did indeed happen, excuse me. Alexander the Great died 320 years approximately before Jesus was born. And so the writing of Alexander the Great would have been during the life of Jesus or immediately following the resurrection. The point here is that historical authors of this time were not making up history or making up fairy tale, but they were actually recording history. So how quickly and how much uh, the resurrection was written about at that point in history is a fact of the resurrection taking place. The third fact that we have in history is the eyewitness accounts. Now, if any of us witnessed a crime, uh, our testimony in a court of law would nearly certainly bring about a guilty judgment upon the individual who committed the crime. And so an objection to this could be, well, isn't it possible that all these people are lying to try to propel the teachings of Jesus? It is possible, but it is very improbable that well over 500 people would agree to perpetuate a lie. Another objection uh, that some have raised, but even according to most skeptical scholars is a foolish objection, uh, is that there was simply just a mass hallucination. All of these people would have seemed to think they have seen Jesus even though they were hallucinating. Uh, researchers who study hallucinations, the experts, say that the largest amount of people in a group hallucination that's ever been recorded was with just eight people. So certainly not over 500 people, which Paul says over 500 saw him at once. 
Secondly, Jesus appeared at various times to these individuals, so it would have had to have been a perpetual hallucination that lasted for at least 40 days before his ascension uh, into heaven. Um, Again, the researchers of hallucinations say that this is just simply impossible. So multiple eyewitnesses over a duration of time is a fact of the resurrection taking place. A fourth fact is that there are enemy accounts. Um, Jesus' own enemies, they did not deny an empty tomb. We can read in scripture uh, where he know we know he was to be buried. Uh, was it uh, Joseph of Arimathea, I believe, off the top of my head? I didn't write this down in my notes, so correct me if I'm wrong, somebody. Um, but he was buried in this tomb. And so... <clears throat> The, the Jews and the Romans tried to come up with alternative stories uh, as to why the body was not there. But the enemy themselves, they account for an empty tomb. The fact that his enemies can see that his tomb is empty is a fact that Jesus resurrected. Now we're actually going to talk about the empty tomb as a fact of history as well, a fifth fact. Uh, we're going to talk about the empty tomb in a little more depth. The tomb was not in a remote location. I think it was Joseph of Arimathea. So he was actually, I believe, on the Jerusalem council. Uh, he was a, a notable individual. This is a heavily populated city of Jews, Romans, and Christians. So the location of this tomb was not a secret to these people. And when the Christians began to spread the news that the tomb was empty and that Jesus had resurrected, the Romans or Jews could have labeled the whole ordeal as a hoax, that Jesus's dead body was removed and reburied. Um, and, but there's a problem with the stolen body theory. No body was ever produced. And if his deceased body were produced, we certainly would have had writing about it from either the Romans or the Jews, his enemies. Uh, and we especially, we especially could have expected an account of the deceased body from the Roman historian and skeptic Celsus who denied the resurrection, but he simply could not, write about a recovered body. Furthermore, where did the apostles and disciples of Jesus start preaching immediately after the resurrection? It was in Jerusalem. And so from a strategic standpoint, it would be a very poor strategy, a very poor tactic on part of the apostles and disciples to preach in the same city where Jesus was put to death. If they were attempting to make up a story, remaining near the scene of the crime would go against all rationality. The empty tomb, the lack of the dead body produced, is a fact of the resurrected Jesus. Now that was just five. There are numerous other arguments and facts surrounding the resurrection of Jesus, but for the sake of time, we're going to share just one last example. This is uh, quite a significant example. It's called the minimal facts argument. Uh, It comes from a gentleman by the name of Gary Habermas. He's a New Testament scholar, a theologian, and apologist. He serves as a faculty member of Liberty University. Much of his scholarly work is devoted to studying the events and the facts around the resurrection. Gary Habermas has developed the minimal facts argument, and there are specific criteria that must be met for a historical fact to be considered a minimum fact. The first criteria is to include only those historical data that are evidenced by multiple lines of argumentation. This would mean, uh, in most cases, each fact that we we present, and I've presented five today, 
um, these facts would have to have a minimum of eight different arguments, while some have as many as 20 arguments that are accepted by critical scholars like um, individuals I referenced earlier, like Bart Ehrman, uh, a skeptical atheist scholar of the resurrection. Uh, and the second criteria is that you can only include data that are accepted as historically verifiable by these same critical scholars. Again, these, these facts would be accepted by a large majority of critical scholars, uh, Barterman, and many others. So here are, here are six minimal facts that are undisputed facts based on credentialed skeptical scholars of the New Testament. The first fact is that Jesus died by crucifixion. The second fact is that Jesus' disciples, they had genuine experiences with who they believed to be the resurrected Jesus. The third fact is that the disciples proclaimed the event of the resurrection immediately. The fourth fact, the disciples' lives were utterly transformed. Uh, think about a willingness to... May, all of the disciples, I believe, were, were killed because of their faith. Um, and so <clears throat> from a position of, of logic, you're not likely going to lay down your life just in order to carry out a, a fabricated lie. So their lives were utterly transformed. Uh, the fifth fact is James, Jesus's brother. He converts to Christianity after the resurrection. Most scholars believe that he was not a Christian prior to the resurrection. Um, an example might be, think about Jesus on the cross. He tells John that his own mother would be John's mother, not James' brother. And this, the scholars think this is probably because Jesus, it, it would be like one of us saying, I would rather trust a believer than an unbeliever. Um, and so Jesus tells John, this is your mother, not his own brother, James. So James converting is a fact. Uh, and finally, the sixth fact is Paul's conversion on the road to D Damascus. Again, Paul was obviously a, a heavy skeptic of Christianity. He was holding coats of those who stoned and killed um, Stephen, the early martyr we read about in the book of Acts. And so for Paul to convert is also a fact of the resurrection. Now, as I mentioned earlier, we would come back to 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, we're, we're nearly done with today's episode. Um, and this is related to the minimal fact argument that we just discussed. So not all of New Testament scripture is seen as historically true by skeptical scholars. In fact, they would dispute the accounts of the resurrection in each of the Gospels. Um, common objections from skeptics are that we have various resurrection accounts. So who discovered Jesus or what time they discovered him. The story isn't exactly the same in each gospel. And so the skeptics argumentation goes that it must not have happened uh, because, the, uh, because of the differences. A simple rebuttal to this objection can come from a few places. Uh, first of all, in a simple in a, or excuse me, in a legitimate courtroom, if a defense is given by multiple people and it is exactly the same, the judge would be rational to believe that the defendants corroborated with one another prior to their defense in order to manufacture a twisting of the facts to try to prove their narrative. And so the fact that we have differences in the account of the resurrection is actually uh, verifying and validating the fact of the resurrection, not negating it. Which leads us to a next point. 
uh, if each of us, let's just say, for example, we witnessed a, tr- a tornado and the destruction that it caused, um, and I had to write about it years or even days later, no two individuals who listen to this podcast or who are sitting in this room would write the exact same details. Um, who they were with would affect the account of how they reported the tornado. Where they were at when it happened would affect how they reported their tornado. So the wrong conclusion about the tornado would be to say, because there are differing accounts of the tornado, it obviously did not happen. A much more accurate conclusion would be, it is evident that a tornado happened and that each individual remembered different details depending on their circumstance and perspective during the tornado. And so that is how we can look at the differing accounts of the resurrection itself. But skeptical scholars, they'll throw out the Gospels. Uh, We're talking about 1 Corinthians 15, but most skeptical scholars will throw out the Gospels because of these differences. They just can't seem to reconcile uh, in their own minds. But 1 Corinthians 15 and and many other epistles were written by Paul uh, prior. He was formerly Saul of Tarsus prior to his conversion. And so skeptical and atheist scholars, by a large majority, accept Paul's writings, the epistles in, in our Bible, as being historically accurate. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul writes about the resurrection, we have a smoking gun in the verdict of whether or not the resurrection indeed took place. Uh, to just read first 3 and 4 again. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And so with uh, these historical facts and with the minimal facts argument, we have established based on history alone that Jesus was a real person, that he was crucified, and that he rose from the tomb on the third day. Uh, The real question today for believers is beyond the historical evidence of Jesus's resurrection, but the real question is how do we respond to the fact that he was indeed raised from the dead? Until next time, thank you for tuning in. You have been listening to Questionable. We will talk to you next time.